Welcome to the Working Together Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. What is the contemporary? How do we build and inhabit our city in a way that gels with who we are and who we're becoming? How do we grow and work together as a community without stepping on each other's toes in haste, without getting slowed down and frustrated with red tape and liability? What is design within all of this? These questions and more get answered in this episode of the Working Together podcast. It's a special one. It's a recording from an event held in Victoria, BC, the city I currently hail from, called Onward City. And the speakers are Whitney Davis, the arts educator in town and librarian of note with a 400-square-foot house, Jill Doucette, the founder of Synergy Enterprises, Craig Dykers, a visiting architect uh, who also happens to be the co-founder of Snowheta, an international architecture firm of note, Helen Marzoff, the executive director of Open Space, Jonathan Tinney, Director of Sustainable Development and Community Planning from the City of Victoria, and of course, hosted by friend and collaborator of Working Together, Caleb Bayers of Cast Projects. This is the second part of a wide-ranging conversation about contemporary culture, public space, and the forces that shape a city. I hope you enjoy it. So, it's now 10 after 7. I want to leave a bit of room for some questions. Um, I th- like. I think we're already like getting a picture of of what we wanted to, uh, or what I hoped we would talk about, and, and some interesting stories. I'm I'm curious about. You know, we talk about we're, we're talking about building a lot and legislation and how structures get made. But what what I really want to know about <clears throat> is how good public space can come into being. Because in the same way that it was really frustrating to plan this bike ride and to deal with like these un, sort of unreceptive bureaucracies that didn't really know how to process the thing that I was trying to do, I want to know um, like how we can like how how public space, which seems to, or it's particularly indoor public space, comes into being because I want. I want more space like this where we can do events like this year-round because we have a lot of outdoor public space in Victoria. Beautiful gardens everywhere with tons of art. And I think people like to get into this rut where it's like, our city doesn't have enough space and not enough art. But if you go looking for it, there are beautiful gardens, beautiful parks all over, amazing murals. They're just kind of hidden. But I think there's a dearth of real indoor sort of flexible public space. And, I, and, I, and you know, I want to figure out, A, either how to, how to access it better or how to, how to make more of it that functions for more people and, and kind of becomes a, um, 
you know, the thing that gets people to mix, the thing that gets people to who are of, from all different backgrounds to mix with one another. I think maybe what you're getting at is, or touching on is, I think, kind of a thread that flows through all of our conversations is the dynamic between the city and the business community and, you know, entrepreneurship and creativity being sort of the whole, the whole of our, our entrepreneurial community, I guess. Um, but I think that that's one big improvement with the city of Victoria as of late is that working collaboratively to actually allow for, for like entrepreneurship and, and the arts to thrive more mm -hmm. instead of trying to control that, creating a little, you know, you tread a careful line between like neoliberalistic, like let's let business control the world and leaving room for creativity and innovation mm -hmm. in a city. So that's, I think from a city's point of view, really challenging to legislate right in that perfect zone. But the cities that are amazing, that have a ton of those public spaces that you talk about, mm -hmm. they have them because they have a great entrepreneurial community. Mm -hmm. Because then there's a business case to have a big open space because stuff's gonna be flowing through there all the time, super rentable, you know, it kind of comes down to that. But if you don't have a thriving entrepreneurial creative community, what are you gonna host in a space like that? And I think Victoria is really <coughs> building its entrepreneurial community and it's, and I think the creative, um, sort of foundation is growing or thriving more. We're seeing it more because, in a lot of ways, the city it got out of the way of that and just yeah. allowed it to thrive more. And um, another key theme, I think, that relates to your question around how do you create those spaces is allowing access for entrepreneurship at a ground level. And um, mm. I did some research on Portland. Colin just came from there, so you're very familiar with all these pieces. but. One of the reasons that I think made Portland great is there was easy access to entrepreneurship. You could start a food truck really easily. You had low capital entry to start something. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to sign a 10-year lease on a 5,000 square foot space just to get going. Right. If we don't have spaces like that, then we won't see that groundswell of entrepreneurship to give people those entry points, to create those spaces, to create great cities, to it's, invest in public space, to. It's sort of like a chicken or the, chicken or the egg mm -hmm. thing, right? It's like, mm -hmm. and in the same way that I, you know, I think, yeah, cities control us. Obviously, everything controls us in it's some It's the way. mother and the police. Pardon? It's yeah. the mother and the police. And the police. Yeah. Um, so it's this kind of funny dance between the, the ha like, needing the thing but not having enough of the thing. It's like... We need more space, but we need more entrepreneurs to make the space, and it's this kind of like untangleable mm -hmm. mess in some ways. I think, though, Jill, what you're saying is extremely important, mm -hmm. and I, you can see you can. There are two different kinds of cities you might go to, like say Calgary, mm -hmm. which is you know a cultural district <coughs> they have. Right. It's a cultural district. It says so. <laughs> and, uh, and look, don't count. I like Calgary a lot. It's not not my point to complain, but my point is that. They're only dealing with culture that you consume. Mm -hmm. So you buy a ticket to see a show or something like that. They're not dealing with culture to make things, which is your version of entrepreneurship. You have to have people making culture in order for culture to truly exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you know, if cities don't cultivate m the ability to make, mm -hmm. and you're only cultivating your ability to consume, then it won't really build up into right. a network, which is the kind of network you're talking about. 
Um, you know, there'll be a nice theater and there'll be a nice museum mm -hmm. and there'll be all these other nice things, but mm -hmm. you won't have a, um, a, a community of, of development of culture. And, you know, and it's not necessarily that culture is even the best thing in the world either. I mean, as, you know, what is it? Every time I hear the word culture, I release the safety latch on my revolver. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, there's, um, there, there, you know, there are other things you can make, like fixing cars and, you know, that kind of culture, which is nice. It's different than artistic culture. I think, getting back to what we said earlier, like, culture is... I, I, I agree, it's a strange word, but it seems to be like only once somebody has described a thing as having cultural mm. value yeah. do we understand it to have cultural value. And mm. I believe in the same way that like, you know, things being in the moment and, and working on something is kind of, is, that's where the culture is happening. And so it's the work. It's the work of like whatever it is you're doing. And I also don't believe that cultural affairs should be confined to art, literature, music, and <clears throat> specific things because I think that, you know, you're like, yeah, you, you know, Fort McMurray, there's a culture of oil up there. It's like, well, yeah, well, sure. That's, <laughs> that no, is a culture. There's much more there. Sure, no, I know, and, but. And there's, uh, you know, I think, I, I think I'm kind of going along with your point where, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, uh, the codification of the city and mm -hmm. how we all gravitate towards what's familiar and what's anointed as culture mm -hmm. or art. And I think basically the cities and the places that are the most vibrant and the most exciting are ones where people feel like they can do something, whether it is mm -hmm. fixing things mm -hmm. or taking it on. Be, you know, whatever activity. I mean, at Open Space, we're always looking for things or things sometimes come to us mm -hmm. that are, you know, by normal standards of what constitutes contemporary art. There's a little bit funny. I mean, True. we had uh, an exhibition or a project of plants in residence, which was a play on artists in residence, and it was <laughs> really incredible. <laughs> it was so much fun. And, uh, you know, it's just a question of people taking, taking on the activity. I don't know whether all of you remember this past winter, a terribly hard winter in Victoria. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when I first moved here, I, from Saskatchewan, I thought, oh, I know everything about snow and ice. But the first time it snowed here, I realized, uh, no, I don't know about Victoria snow, but there's this phenomenon called the snow day. And on snow days, you get to see incredible activity here. Like I saw somebody trying to clean their, their driveway off with the, the leaf blower. <laughs> I, I thought, this is too great. And then there's this other thing that they do, when it snows a lot, they get their kayaks out and they start going down the wow. inclines on the kayaks. Wow. And everybody's, you know, kind of witnessing this and, you know, there's a certain kind of, uh, creative energy circulating in the city because of that. And there's, there's all kinds of things that occur or happen or are instigated in the most casual and mm -hmm. wacky play, ways here that are largely under the radar. And it's such a beautiful thing to, to be able to participate in that. Yeah, and we, we I don't went, know whether you can legend. We you went can, to the, the hill at Beacon Hill Park <laughs> and there were hundreds of people. Yeah. And, 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 and all just in this community uh, and, and do, it was a culture of winter and fun and, and, it, and it's cool and I think that that's a big neighborhoods and 
places and when people are actually able to go out and not just be in their car or their air-conditioned apartment yeah. or condo or suburban house or workplace when there's sort of a, a middle ground where you get out of those spaces yeah. and kind of can interact well you participate instead of being yeah well the snow in yeah. this case the snow is the is the magnet right so it partially because it's not often there no, so that, that helps and then there are different characteristics about the snow that brought people out in that particular way so then the question is can you design that well I don't think you I don't think you can but I think I think I think that there are um, there are probably places all over the city where people uh, instigate something yeah it, it um, I think that that is a really profound thing to, to and I don't know that it can be to create potential for things right. like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think the concept of critical mass is a really a really important one because you know the you know we talked about entrepreneurship and and you know the, the way that, that 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 cities in the business community grow from being a place of of you know shopkeepers to a place of of of, of, of strong entrepreneurship uh, at, a, at a higher level is the ability to scale and creating some of the infrastructure for Going from I make something in my house to in my garage yeah. to I make something and I sell it in a in a shop or in a, in a off a end of a food truck and I'm able to continue to to scale and I think cultural production is the same and we mm -hmm. need to think about what the ecosystem is within our particular communities that allow for cultural production to occur so how do we take somebody who is creating something and selling it on Etsy and turn that into something that is supporting a sort of broader and, and engaging with a broader group of people and how does that focus into our institutions whether they be the you know the universities or the art galleries in the world how is that uh, aligning itself with you know commercial art galleries and not-for-profit galleries to, to sort of pull in those different places because that's because once we get to that sort of scale then we can support some of those physical pieces of infrastructure that, that exactly, allow yeah. businesses to happen. And we can do those things on various scales, but it, it, it's, uh, it, you know, that, that scalability and the creation of a critical mass in a particular area that can grow is a really important thing. And I think it's a particularly important in a city with only 380,000 people in the region. I, um, there's, there's a limited amount of activity that we can generate. As in, like, measure its sustainability to, to be able to occur these things. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you 100%. I think the, the only thing that I would disagree with is, is the idea that like we can define cultural production as something specific as opposed to everything. Every, like the city, each city has its own culture that kind of emerges as a, as a like a property of a complex system. All complex systems have behaviors that we can't There was predict. a pretty di big disagreement for someone who agreed 100%. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, I, I agree that we, that, we, that we need critical mass and we need space, and I know that that's, like, that's how you make a business case. You get to say, we're going to have this many people come to a thing. We can turn them, we, you know, this percentage of them are going to buy the thing that's presented to them, and that'll generate this much revenue, and blah, so, blah, blah. Then I'm we not, can, But I'm not talking just about purchasing, but it just it, in terms of... The, the, the creation and the engagement, uh, and, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a commercial transaction, but it does have to be something. It has to be something sort of tangible that you can build on. You, you can build a culture around the fact that we all say A, but that's, that's a part of it, but that's not necessarily something that, that we can grow and we can build and we can, and, uh, we can support. It, we, we really are, are talking about you know, those sort of productive mm. activities. Yeah. I could, if I could share with you how I perceive this as a designer, um, I, I see the world that we make in a slightly different viewpoint as many of my designer friends. Most of my designer friends see 
us as making things that we are creating for others. Um, but I don't see it that way. I, I see us as human beings fundamentally creating um, our own habitat. And essentially, we've created it in, in, a, in a way in, in that currently is all about self-domestication. So um, we domesticate lots of animals, cows and sheep and all of that. Some of them, they were quite happy to be domesticated. You know, they're like there in their little place and they got their grass and everything like that. Other animals are not so happy to be domesticated, a polar bear or something like that. Doesn't quite fit into that context. Um, and so then we create zoos, right, as for animals. <laughs> so we have a zoo and we can go see the animals that don't like to be domesticated. Um, and, uh, and, and we see them. And, and if, you, if you build a bad zoo, I mean, most zoos are a little strange, but there are some that are better than others. So say you take a polar bear and you, and you build a polar bear habitat, and it's really a bad one. It's like a concrete thing with like a, that, that creature will, will abuse itself. It'll um, get aggressive. It'll lick itself until the hair falls off. It'll get sickly. It'll start to have um, health issues because purely of this thing that we stuck it in. Mm -hmm. And if you were to make it larger, it might have a better life, at least compared to its worst case scenario. We build our own zoo. So everything in this room, everything outside the walls of this room, everything, everywhere we go that we are making something, we are making our own little zoo cage. <laughs> and we think that we're making it for other reasons, but we're not. We're just finding ways to self-domesticate ourselves to put ourselves into a, into a foundation of control and habitat. And if you, if you design a bad zoo cage for human beings, they get aggressive and they get unhealthy. If you design a good cage for a zoo cage for human beings, they're more creative and they do more things. So then the question is, what are those things that make our habitat useful reasonably useful to us. We can do it for a polar bear. You know, it's got to have like cold water and like lots of space and white stuff everywhere, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but we can't really do it for ourselves. Like what makes a human habitat good? So for me, it's actually pretty simple. There's only a few things that drive us. Sex is a big one. Uh, you know, we, we put that on the side. We're like, ooh, don't talk about sex, it's, you know. But it's probably what drives a huge percentage of our lives. Um, in different layers and forms. Ownership, which is of course closely related to sex. Um, you know, how, what do you own and how do you own it and why do you own it and how do you control it? And, and providing people with a sense of ownership is a great thing. So if you feel that you're owning your existence and that you own your destiny and that you own your time on earth, you're gonna feel more creative and you're gonna feel more um, sort of able to live in your habitat. And there's a few other things like that. And so I build that into the designs that I make. So I'll say, like, take the Oslo Opera. When people climb up the Oslo Opera to the roof of the opera, they did it. They went to the top. They did it on their own. And it was no elevator. And, you know, they, they feel good that they did it. So good, in fact, and going back to my sex comment, there's a group of people who apparently uh, on the internet list their names because they had sex on the roof of the opera. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, it was a little scary when I first heard about that, but if people are happy enough to have sex on your building, I think that's okay. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, then in the staircases in SF MoMA, or the, the more per probably pertinent one is the, the benches in Times Square. 
So we're working with you know, basically 43 million people a year in this tiny little space. And we made these benches so that you never quite know how you're supposed to sit on them. And, and they're challenging you. Like if you're a polar bear and you, someone gives you fish every day, you're going to get tired of it. But if you can like wrap the fish up into something that they got to like fight to get the fish out of, they're going to be happier. Because people like problems. People like so challenges. True. And so if you introduce problems and challenges, it's a counterintuitive thing, but people mm -hmm. like it. And so um, in, in a way, uh, you have to kind of go through the back door from what we've been taught for 60 or 70 years, which is design it to, to work right. Like yeah. design a bench so that it works right. Well, what's right? Mm -hmm. That you can sit on it and everyone can sit on it in the right way? Or is it a bench that might work right for you and right for you, and you two have different ways of sitting that you like. You've got to provide the choice. And once the choice is there, then people feel they've, they're in control of what they want to do. I think, they, you know, feel good. I think choice is key. And going back to what you said earlier about zoos and cages, um, Hannah and I listened to billions of podcasts. And <clears throat> one that we listened to was about animals in cages and how they will eventually over time hurt themselves and, and behave erratically if, if they're not able to sort of live out their natural condition. Yeah. yeah, their yeah. natural condition. And, um, and they probably didn't animals, use humans in that example. No, but when those animals go crazy or, or start to go crazy, they can, they can take them out of the cage and introduce them to a new environment. And it, they, it, it creates more neuronal structure in their brain. The yeah. neurons become more dense. And Hannah and I do this thing we call bushy brain bike rides, where we just leave the house on the bike, don't have a plan. We just like wander and look for weird right. light or weird buildings. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind sort of, of intuitive. Yeah, I'm always seeking, you know, it's, it's funny that you say we're, we work to domesticate ourselves. Like, I'm always seeking newness. Yeah. Like, I want to see something I've never seen before. I'm always like, weird, like, weird good or weird bad. Unfamiliarity to me is what makes me. Have you, have you ever heard of the situationists tick. people? I was yeah. part of that for a while where you take a map of the wrong city and go to, like, take a map of Paris to Berlin and try yeah. and find your way around. It's really great. It does it sort of like that. Um, but, you know, I think what you're saying is essentially how do we actually react to this zoo that we're creating yeah. for ourselves. So I sort of believe that we live within a, a conduit of thinking between the predictable and the intuitive. Mm. So we, for only probably 50,000 years or so, we've been really dependent on predictability. Prior to that, we were much more intuitive. So gathering and hunt hunting can be an intuitive process. Farming is predictable, so you need an almanac to tell you when the sun's coming up and all of that stuff. And today we generally rely on predictability, which is why we like to look in the news. And most, 90% of the news is saying, this is going to happen tomorrow because this happened. Mm -hmm. It's all about predicting what's going to happen, right? We just, we crave predictability. But as, what always happens is that if you get too predictable, which is kind of a world that we were talking about, legislation and everything, then you kind of go nuts, and you got to have a party, and you rip all your clothes off, and you run around naked. Uh, likewise, if you if you um, are too intuitive, where everything doesn't make sense, and you don't know where you are, you crave predictability. So you grab something that you can hold on to: your mm -hmm. husband, your wife, your mother, your father, because you know what that's about. Mm -hmm. and, and then, and so I think the the conundrum of the modern mind is trying to find where we are in the spectrum of being completely intuitive creatures 
and highly predictable creatures. Mm -hmm. And unless you allow that to flourish, public realm becomes a problem. And you know, it, it, it's it's the we're in the midst of that right now. Mm -hmm. and so we have. Uh, you know, looking at public space within the, the, the city, um, we have in, in many ways a lot of predictability and, 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 and boredom in one sense, but in other cases, uh, sort of a cacophony of different sort of styles and approaches and different things. And so the, the approach that the, we're taking in the city now is, is how do we look at the public realm? How do we, how do we calm the palate of the city that allow in, in, in the public spaces to some extent so it allows for different things to flourish? Mm -hmm. So it's not competing with you know, that, that, that person who's playing good music on the corner or that event that's occur occurring in the square or, or that great uh, heritage building which we've spent some time and effort in, in, in trying to maintain. And so those things can pop out. Uh, the, uh, Gale Architects has done a lot of really great research about the, the, the mind and boredom when we move through the city and that at walking pace, you know, the, the, the facades of buildings need to change about every 50 or 80 feet or else you know, so, we start to get bored. You may not know this, but you know, Jan Gale and I have like a, I think we've been in fist fights with each other. <laughs> we actually so disagree with one another. I have nothing. Can I put 20 bucks on, on Jan? Uh, yeah, he's bigger than me. Um, my point with Jan is that I agree completely with the, um, with the analysis, right? There's certain things that we all kind of gravitate around as being useful. The problem with Gale is that then he legislates it. Well, you gotta have a certain number of changes of facade every 50 feet. I've been looking at these buildings and they all, everyone, you know, these kinds of things work well and these don't. So we all have to do that because it works well. And then suddenly you're not able to like say, well actually, maybe 100 feet could be okay. Mm -hmm. He's a Dane, so you kind of expect that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also think that we as, people and our behaviors and the way that we move through space and the way that we use our devices and the way that we use vehicles and all, all these different things changes so much over time. And especially now, things seem to be changing very, very quickly. Like, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I've seen many more improvisational electric vehicles in Victoria in the last year. Everything from like, today I was driving down the street, I saw a guy with kind of like this weird leather agent jacket. He looked like he rode out of Mad Max, but on an electric bike. And then I saw like a weird little purple golf cart downtown. And, you know, we're, we're, we're making bike lanes and there are these crazy rapid, rapid changes that are happening. And I think that the idea of really trying to predict how something will be in the future by legislating and saying like, this is really good for people. I think our understanding of of what's good for people as we kind of like get closer and farther apart, it needs to be flexible. And, and so it's super encouraging to know that that flexibility is being built in because <clears throat> I think for the freedom that the collective mind has to have to imagine new possibilities and to look at a space and say, hey, we can get a bunch of people here and do a cool thing, we have, they have to have the sense that like they're gonna be allowed to do that. And that and that's really that's really important to me. I mean, I I I, I can when I'm working in my studio, I can tinker, I can draw, I can make models, I can do whatever, because I know that they're only ever going to exist there in my mind. When I start thinking about how to get them out into the world and how to make things happen, it it almost feels like it's too. And I wonder what would happen if you just got rid of all the planning department, just erased it completely, and spent all that money Sorry, on, on education, <laughs> on, on educating 
you know, trying to educate so that maybe the planning department became like a school and you could go there and you could meet people who know about planning and they could tell you all the things that they know and they could try and inform you. Um, they could uh, advertise those things that they think are really great mm -hmm. and start to put them in newspapers and in magazines. And it'd be like, everybody would be like, wow, man, the sexiest planning weekly just came out. You know, <laughs> I, I got the newest one, and it's like the super sexy planning director going, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. And, and somehow it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, rather, you know, I'm, you know that, that you just took planning and, and looked at it from a, a different route into society. Yeah. And you don't get rid of it, you just completely transform it. I mean, I think just this, just a thought. I think this stuff is so <laughs> planning and design and buildings are so fascinating to me. I like, I want, I want to make it sexy. I want to figure out how to make this thing that I think is so vital to our future well-being. Because if we're designing our buildings, we need to be involved in that process. And I want, I, I have a degree in psychology, and and here I am, like talking about architecture and design, and I never studied any of this stuff. But, and I don't have any real power over it. The best I can do is sort of like be there, be a bit annoying or, you know, in my own way, in the same way that like somebody who actually has the ability to, or the, the capital and the resources and the manpower to make a building, the city wants to, you know, legislate. I want to like disrupt and, and, and try and get things out of the way so that, so that, we can sort of like slowly move the, 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 the spectrum of what's, what the people with means think is possible towards something where people can mix on a more regular basis and more spontaneous things can happen. And we can have the, like, the vibrant cities that we have in Berlin and New York and all these, all these places where things happen so that people Conakry. can- Conakry. I, I did a project in, have you ever heard of a town called Conakry? Uh, it's it's um, it's uh, um, the capital of a of a country on West Africa called Guinea, Guinea or Guinea. There's two. There's Equatorial Guinea, and then there's Guinea or Guinea. Um, and Conakry is a city of uh, officially about 1.3 million, unofficially maybe 2.3 million people, and it has no electrical system whatsoever. What? Period. So at night when the sun goes down, it's pitch black. <laughs> it's amazing. A, amazing. Yeah, it's weird to be in. It's like going back to ancient Rome or something. So, so they, they like for light, because uh, you need light, they might drag at night a big table from their one person's living room or dining room and drag it into the middle of the street and then put candles on it. And then everyone shares the table and the candles, that house, this house, whatever. And they all, they all develop their evening meal around a shared candle or something like that. Um, and because there's no light, it makes it hard to, to drive and so on. So there's not a lot of driving going on. But the city just has this weird organic process of growing. And I find that sometimes when you look at those places, um, you know, they, have a, they also kind of somehow eventually find a stasis, even in the midst of old chaos. I mean, the classic example is, of course, Houston, which is such a tired example. But they don't have any zoning laws. Uh, there at all. That that's, they don't have planning. They have a lot of planning, I know. Regulated. Yeah, it's very regulated, so that's why I say I'm reluctant to use it as an example. Um, on the other hand, it does have a different approach to how you manage a city, which is like um, allow certain things to just play themselves out naturally. So, for example, a, a 700,000 square foot iron smelting plant 
is not, by virtue of the sheer economy, going to build its plant in the neighborhood where a lot of people are building nice homes or even smaller homes. Um, so there's some version of that survival of the fittest attitude. But yeah, it's extremely managed. But I've worked there a lot, and uh, I have found that it's just incredibly easy to uh, change things because there is a, at least an attitude that, well, yeah, if it works, then let's just do it. Because they don't have all the things. They have, they have a lot of management, but they don't have a lot of legislation. I guess that's the difference. No, I think, but I think, again, it goes back to just finding, the, finding, finding those levers that protect the things that are most important. So mm -hmm. I, always, I always like the comparison between New York mm -hmm. and, and Los Angeles. And if you look at the, the mix of things and uses in Los Angeles and New York, it's actually kind of the same. You get muffler shops next to French denim emporiums mm -hmm. next to these kinds of things. Except in LA, it's, it, it goes horizontally. Right. Yeah. Whereas in New York, you'll see things that will stack vertically. Mm -hmm. And that is really a, a, you know, partly a nature of the uh, geography. The geography, but also a nature of the grid and, mm -hmm. and the structure of the city and, and the way it goes. And so, you know, setting some of that DNA properly um, can, can allow things to occur, but allows them to occur in a way that, allow, that lets you do things like uh, put, you know, put transit down in a, in a more efficient way. And so, again, it's. it's it's always a challenge to figure out, but what is what is the lever that we pull on that, that helps to you know protect things mm. into the future, but allow other things to occur? Somebody we were talking to earlier, one of, one of you that was a, talking about teaching, maybe that was Possibly you. Possibly in education. Yeah, and the same problem exists, right, in education. Yeah. Like, how do mm -hmm. you legislate yeah. what how young people are going to mm -hmm. uh, discover the world? Mm -hmm. How yeah, do you? There's do you, a system, but. And you want to have creative freedom, but there's sort of, A, the space, like the school as an institutional space. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it's hard to get, pa yeah. get, past get that, out of yeah. there for freedom of creativity. Um, and then there's also the, you know, rules and regulations of how to, you know, like, like accountability and, and assessment and all of that come into play when you're trying to just do something. Uh, many of the many, many teachers are just trying to educate students in the best way possible and they're wonderful people and smart people and yet they're they meet roadblocks because yeah, yeah. of sort of bureaucracy or, or you have to teach this on this day so mm -hmm. exactly and there are so many barriers um, mm. to what would be amazing possibilities um, and I think that sort of seems like there's a little more of that with more like all the lawyers sitting on the panel or whatever mm. you know like uh, there's more of that now I think um, while there's more freedom and more ideas all churning around and more information and more knowledge, there's also that. And it's kind of, they're kind of almost at uh, butting heads. Anyway. Hmm. At least you have an education system. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah. we're, we're now at quarter to eight, and I feel like in the, spirit, yeah, in the spirit of keeping mm -hmm. things new, um, I, instead of doing a question session, are you guys okay with just... We can ask the audience questions. <laughs> that would be cool. They, they might have some questions. Yeah, I thought, I, I thought we could maybe do a couple of questions just from whoever. And then also I would like to hang out and keep the conversation going. Maybe, yeah, go wherever to, go to wherever. Yes? So in this discussion, we've talked about public spaces mm -hmm. and how to create public spaces. We've talked about how to educate children how to get them more involved in culture, how to bring them up in, I don't want to say a culture of culture, but then... I'll release the safety latch <laughs> on my revolver. <coughs> um, 
and you know, we've been talking about city and design, and I'm a little bit surprised that we haven't talked about children and families and how to. Or, or, or aging people. Yeah. Which are similar to children. Right. My parents are, anyway. <laughs> question about how to raise children um, in a, in a you know, cultural atmosphere and how to create these public spaces. So, in downtown Victoria, it is very difficult to find any three bedroom places. And I think that's a travesty. We also talked about what it's like in Europe. Well, my family is planning a one month trip to Europe, and we're having to look for bigger spaces because I have four children. Only taking three of them to Europe. But we're finding that a lot of families have three children actually in Europe. And I wasn't expecting that. I thought, I, well, not that I've surveyed everybody in Europe, but I expected to find a lot of you know, apartments downtown saying you know, we can only accommodate one extra child or two children. But a lot of people uh, who are looking to exchange homes have three kids. And they live downtown. And then they talk about their neighborhoods and show their public spaces. This is where you live, come and stay. This is what it look like. And, you know, I, I have my four children in Alberta. There's more of a, a culture of bigger families there. Came here, found out by everybody's reaction, that's not the case here. And I see the wisdom in it now, but what can I do? They're uh -huh. already here. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, they're great. Um, and so I, I moved downtown and lived in a small little apartment and crammed all my kids in. And they went back and forth from Alberta and downtown Victoria, and they loved being downtown, and they miss it very much, even though it was crappy. You know, it was a really small apartment. And we moved to Shelburne, uh, up by Hillside, and found we didn't get out as much. We didn't go downtown as much. It's hard to be spontaneous. We'd have to drive there. We'd have to try and find parking. Um, if we were to bike, that would be even more serious biking all the way downtown. We've got to bike all the way up and it's difficult. We can't just pop outside to go I, th I, th I mean, I think that it's so important to include thinking about all ages. And when we talk about timelines, this was one of the things that I've been thinking about and hoping to get to in this conversation. And I think, I hope we can continue this after. And I'd like to introduce you later to a, a friend of mine who was just talking to me a f couple weeks ago about using kids in the design process and having kids imagine what a space could be and having kids play in a space because then they get to use it in ways that grown-ups wouldn't think about or wouldn't dream about oh, because it's un Talk about legislation. Oh my god. We tried to design like a playground once and I mean the amount of stuff like no they're going to hurt themselves. No they Yeah, everything, yeah. you know, and it ends up becoming like an insane asylum room. Everything's padded. <laughs> you know, cuz that actually is the safest possible and even then they might suffocate. So, you know, there, there's like so many, it's weird actually. We even are piling on the legislation on young people too. I just finished a playground in Austria, which um, I guess because uh, there's mountains there, they're not afraid of heights. So I could build like a five story high playground, which in this uh, part of the world, especially in the US, you know, impossible. You'd fall five floors down or something like that. But um, a part of the challenge, yeah, is, you know, what do we, how do we want our kids to uh, interact with the world around them? Are we going to make everything safe and perfect for them and idyllic? Or are we going to let them, you know, cut their fingers on a brick that 
on a on a building while they're exploring some strange part of the city. So uh, you know, it's a, it's the same kind of challenge, just in a different different way. Well, certainly we need to have playgrounds and things like that. But mm. We also are putting out a lot of buildings right now, and very few, if any, of them have three. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's two there too. If I could add another layer to that, we also didn't talk about animals very much. So we talk about all of this stuff that like is all about us. You know, but one of the jokes I always say is that if you look at many buildings, they'll have, especially traditional historical buildings, they'll have ornament of animals, like a bird, like a bronze bird built over the door, mm. you know, some sort of cow skull or something. But if, a, like if it's a bird sculpture, if a real bird were to make a nest on that building, it'd get shot. So like we'd, we're happy to make, you know, like images of animals just so long as the real ones stay over there. And, and, uh, and, you know, the animal habitat and how it integrates with humans, young people, elderly people, which are growing in, in numbers, all of these things create a totality, and we tend to just kind of uh, break everything up. But, you know, and, and then in terms of kids, you know, of course, you have this beautiful landscape. And, and get, it's interesting to me that at a certain point, all the legislation kind of slowly disappears, right? Like, if you take your kid out to the forest, Suddenly, there's a, a tree without a handrail around it. <laughs> or, you know, why isn't that rock having yellow and black stripes on it so I know not to trip on it? Actually, it's kind of fascinating. I've always thought, what would it be like if you started downtown and just started walking? At what point would the rules disappear? You know? Right. It's like you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, on Douglas, yeah, just over there, yeah. I know, but I mean, you know, I think that's part of part of it too, and how you deal with kids. I, I don't know the issue about three-bedroom homes or not, or you know, I mean, we have somebody here who lives in a one-bedroom home with four kids. Seems to work. Yeah. <laughs> who 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 needs who needs if you have four kids and you can only find a two-bedroom, put three kids in the one bedroom. Yeah, and leave and the other one outside. <laughs> yeah, put one in the car. <laughs> that's New York. But so, so your point is, I, and I think it's important to like inclusion, inclusion yeah. and accessibility for, for families and kids. And like, um, I, I, I'm thinking about like festivals that have sort of popped up in Victoria and like, um, or Flandia and, and, and those sort of things. And over the years, you know, the, the, the city started to allow, you know, drinking with, with kids. It's okay to have a beer or however many. If you're going to be, a, you be the parent, you know what you can do. And kids are allowed to be in the space where adults drink, whereas before it was this big well, fence. Well, and mm. I, my kids have had glorious times at, at, these, at these events where otherwise they wouldn't have gotten to rock out to Courtney Love or whatever. <laughs> uh, it, and, yeah, I grew um, up without the borders. Yeah, when I was younger, there was no Yeah, and my kids at our place that we're building, we're constantly, there's constantly some sort of vapor barrier between a room that has no floor. And they play with almost like pretty much garbage that we were like here's something that looks like it would be kind of fun and they really the toys that they play with are they we 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 took asphalt out of our driveway and it's just it was broken up and underneath it's all sand and they called it the beach and we've had like cool. beach days it's like, <laughs> fantastic and That's cool, they yeah. sit there and they've got like sand on their bottom they come in and I'm like oh I gotta clean you up there because uh, yeah. they don't wear their pants outside sometimes it's funny you know they're happy they're so happy and so yeah. Right. So you're different. Yes. Of course. Yes. Totally. But but the accessibility and the sort of inclusion of of family and older generations and uh, contemporary.
people and the younger generation, it's so important and it's so, and that's what a city should do um, because it helps the kids uh, become stronger and more educated and be involved in the process of mm -hmm. all of this stuff. Um, sure. Not because I think kids should design my like house. I'm like, no, 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 you can't put the toilet in the middle of the room. Okay, I, fi I see why you like that and because you like to make like pooping noises with your four-year-old <laughs> friends or whatever, but like, no, 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 that's, that's, I draw the line there. But you know, the kids. I'm not coming to your house. <laughs> <laughs> the toilet's not in the middle of the room, we have a bathroom, it just doesn't have a curtain all the way on the door. Uh, but um, yeah, inclusion, because it, they do, they do have a, a, they're important and, you know, so. Well, and, and, and then just one more other layer is, you know, ethnicity issues, mm -hmm. which we don't really talk about. You know, we, we you know, the, 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 the challenge today is that we're growing in, in much more interconnected, more complex ethnical makeups of people. And, and, you know, how is that being managed? And in housing, I just came back from a tour in Munich. Munich has some pretty amazing uh, um, uh, Im immigration um, planning for housing. So basically they used to have, you know, these big ghettos and you, and they, it was not like they were not, they were mean people, they tried to make nice, you know, 15-story buildings with balconies and stuff, but all of that. And of course, it just made a ghetto. And now they're trying new things, which some of these things have been tried in other cities, like, you know, you have to have a certain number of, of units in a new building for a certain um, uh, economic uh, structure of people, which usually is an immigrant um, who's making less money than those that have been there for a while. And so then you started getting these problems like back doors. Like, oh, the, you know, the rich people enter this door and the, mm -hmm. you know, all those people from Pakistan or whatever, they enter that door. And that was a total failure. And now what they're doing is finding really interesting models where, um, for example, one that I really liked the most was a developer who, who built, you have to build 30-30-30 basically, 30% low income, 30% rental, and 30% market rate. And then the other 10% uh, is mixed in other, other little things. And so how do you get that to coexist in one building? Because the developer is like, I don't want all these low-income things in my house. I'll never get the money on the market rate ones. Nobody's going to want to live here. So, um, so what they did, the best one I liked, was they built three separate buildings um, instead of trying to pretend that it all can work in one. And they each had their own door, and they each had their own, own thing, except for the roofs, which were all connected together. So um, people like to go to the roof because it's pretty and you have lots of garden up there and all of that. And that's where they mix on the roof rather than on the street. And it's, it's not because the street isn't important. Each building has its own little set of shops and everybody goes in them and they maybe bump into each other every now and then. But basically they feel much more free to, to um, socialize up on the roof. And uh, you know, that was an interesting, uh, I thought, model to think about. Yeah. Yeah, Munich. I, I, I have, I'll remember it. It's, um, but I'm, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, but they're still on the old model where you get these like doors in the back for the poor folks. Yeah. Yeah, which is a kind of a problem. Um, it's starting to change slowly and you're starting to see now like the most recent ones I saw where they're now saying you can't just have a zone in the building that's for one group. You have to move them around in the building. So it's a little strange too. So every door is the same and everybody looks like they live in the same place. 
but uh, you know, you walk inside of one. You know, when you have a long corridor with doors and you see into your neighbors and see that they've got like a different whole setup than you do, there's still a so, 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 you know a sublimation of things. Do we have any other questions? I think touching on that point of the roofs coexisting in the same space, it goes back to what I, I keep thinking about during this conversation as a, uh, uh, a place to interact either with other people or with other businesses or from people with other walks of life or from, from public spaces and going back to that point and like what makes a public space and what makes a cultural space. And it's that space where all kinds of different people can interact and it's... Maybe they're being in the moment together. Yeah, that I mean, being... Like just there, not thinking about anything else. Like you think about something like the MIT Media Lab. Mm. It's like throw all these people from different walks of life into a space and they interact and whatever comes out of that is whatever comes out of it. Like, mm. out of like a, uh, like a, a closed room, a bunch of bouncy balls and you just chuck them in there. Whatever happens and whoever hits and whoever sticks, stick and whoever doesn't, doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it's like those kinds of spaces and like coming out of our own little bubbles are what creates the ability to move forward, I think. And I think the media lab partly works because the range of disciplines is so wide. Yeah. Mm. So if it were all engineers, like the engineering school has like a little maker space, it would be very different. Yeah. So the beauty of that is that they threw people, acousticians, uh, opera singers, you know, engineers, uh, tech people, all into a kind of relatively small building. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Mm. I, uh, I, I feel like it's not that hard to make a public space. And I think mm. kids use public spaces like really yeah. well. Like, mm -hmm. like a flat pot could be a public space. And in Portland, there's a really great park, I think it's called. I think it's Drecker Square. But it's just this, it's a water park, but the, the grade is just a, a really shallow grade. And then there's a curve at the end. And you get about this much water that builds up. And it's just different. And I think that's a really important part of making a good public space. It's just something that's a little bit different that's going to take you out of your the unfamiliarity. Day -day life. Sure. Like, oh, that's, that's weird. Um, in Copenhagen, there's, it's flat. There's no hills. Uh, and I noticed that the, the kids' um, parks would have these little, like they would have these little hills because there was nothing else around like that. And the kids would just go nuts playing on this because it's, it's just kind of different. Mm -hmm. I think, it's e I think your, your comment could be rephrased to say it's very easy to conceive of good public mm -hmm. space design. It's maybe harder to get it actually built um, because suddenly then you've got people saying, oh, that much water, it's dangerous. Uh, yeah. Mud. Do, do I'm not having. Yeah, has it got bacteria in it? You know, what if my kid swallows some of that and, water? And, and the then, then it starts to get really into because you know today we're we're. I almost feel like I'm a negotiator more than I'm a designer. Like I used to think architecture was all about design. Now I think it's all about negotiation. You know, I'll give you a little of this. I'll take a little of that. We want one of these. And by the way, you probably didn't notice, but there's a little mud pile behind here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's kind of like you know, it, it gets more complex once you enter the messy world of human beings. Um, but I think you're right. It's easy, easy, relatively easy to conceive of good public space design because theoretically, it, it should just be about what's natural to every one of us. And, and you don't have to over-engineer it. 
Yeah. I think sometimes too, though, it's uh, it's 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 moderating between all the different people who who have a, a, a stake in that. And and very often, especially here in Canada, we default to public spaces being something grassy and green. Mm -hmm. The reality is, in this particular climate, that means it's a mud pit for eight months out of the year. <laughs> and while you know, uh, uh, definitely your kids would enjoy that, but um, <laughs> as would mine. But I think it's. It's thinking about the temporality of those spaces. Mm -hmm. So how do they, how do they, like, we can always imagine how a space works really well when there's a festival in it or when it's, you know, full of, 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 of kids playing. But how does that work at night? How does it work in the winter? How does it work uh, all these different times of day for different types of users? And it's not just about the space. It's also about what happens, uh, what's happening in the areas around it so that we can layer all those things on. Those great spaces that we think about that we know really well have a, a diversity of things happening around them that then impact the activity in those spaces on an ongoing basis. And so often we create really great spaces that don't have the diversity around them and we wonder why they're empty. Right, mm -hmm. like City Hall Plaza in Boston. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's not a great, a great... Lots of City Hall Plaza. Yeah, all over mm -hmm. yeah no, I, but I also think that there's an interesting point to be made about how kids can just create public space out of nothing. Mm -hmm. They just they like, no here's, a, they here's a puzzle, no when fear, they want... Kids, exactly. I, I interact so much more. It's like people with dogs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's great. It's good. It's mm -hmm. so great. They don't, they don't mind. And they don't have their fate. They're not like doing this, too. They're looking They're at not? The I thought the two-year-olds were doing <laughs> that. Right? Hey, there's somebody back there. Yep. Yeah, so um, to continue this discussion about public space and uh, conceptualizing indoor versus outdoor public space, because in actuality, the most used, most diverse public spaces tend to be like big open plazas in like middle of Italy and, and like, you know, Times Square where go and like, use the space on maps and things like that, that are not as police and things. Um, so you have like these big open, like no, no uh, programming in these spaces. Oh, they're heavily programmed. 500 events a year in Times Square, heavily programmed. But I mean, it cycles through all of these different things. It's not like one program all the time and you're like yeah. driving this space to be one thing. Sure. Public, public space that's like for meeting in or anything like that. It's like, you know, let's allow things to happen in here naturally, organically. Oh. How do you, how, well, no, yes, issues with that statement because public spaces are actually complex, but I want to know, like, how can you get the kind of spaces that are more accessible in indoor public spaces because they tend to be semi-private and much more heavily um, well, you've heard, you've heard the, it's funny because you earlier were saying it's, and this is an amazing space to have this talk. It's almost like, why do we need any other yeah, spaces? Yeah. Like of every great. I want to drink with yeah. what, what? But, but it goes, uh, the, the, you probably heard this story. I'm sure it was widely publicized. When the 1% um, uh, you know, um, the Wall Street protests were occurring, what was that called? Occupy, Occupy mm -hmm. Wall Street. I, my studios was right there. So I went out, uh, you know, and hung out and did all the stuff that, with everybody. Um, and that, that event occurred on one particular square just off of Wall Street. It turns out that the only reason that that could occur is because it's not public space. It's a privately owned space. Um, if that event were to take place in the park across the street, 
they would have been pushed and said they couldn't do it because it was legislated by the city, a public park. The park that they occupied was owned by an individual, and the individual said, well, I'm going to leave them there because they could say that as an individual owner. So that's a fascinating twist on what we see as public space. In fact, in this case, private space was more public than public space. Hmm. And you, you have a similar situation here um, where we have a wonderful commercial institution who um, thrives on the economy that these wonderful things provide. And we're able to participate in a, in a particular way because that person has allowed it to happen and is, it might not have happened otherwise in a more programmed public interior venue. Um, which is why I think things like nightclubs and other things became like places for political, um, political movements and other things like that. So I, I don't know that you necessarily need to have only publicly programmed public indoor spaces to uh, create culture. Um, it might, might be that you'd get more of it out of using private spaces. On the other hand, um, there's some new ideas that are happening like in New York City, you've probably heard about the culture shed. Um, anybody? <laughs> it, can, it can fit our city hallway. It's giant. It's yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's one of those sales, sales techniques that you get in New York. But anyway, it, it has a movable roof and it's kind of dynamic and flexible, and you can do things inside or outside, depending on on what what what, you, what your direction is. Um, we're designing in in Portland um, a space that floods regularly, so that. Um, you can actually be in the in the in the room while it's flooding, <laughs> so that you can sort of see <laughs> this whole thing coming in and like you know tsunami and everything. Um, but it it it, it it's there because um, you know to create public space that invites different kind of thinking, we're allowing nature to push back on people, and uh, and I, I think that's a you know another kind of approach. Um, one of the things that's great about a space like this is that it wasn't designed to do this sort of thing. It was designed for a mechanical shop or a workshop at one time. And it wasn't designed to be a furniture showroom. And then suddenly it was turned into a furniture showroom. And so that makes it one step removed. And then now tonight it's a public venue. So it's like two steps removed. I almost joke that you should give all projects for the public realm the wrong program. Like if I'm going to design a building for a public thing, like make it into a, say, here's the program. It's actually a shoe factory. And then once you finish designing it and then you build it, don't build, make shoes in it. <laughs> you know, do something else. <laughs> the best. Creativity is involved. Yeah. In yeah. Making it work. And yeah. that's when things are interesting. Yeah. I think. When it's yeah. not. For the like, yeah, for the reason the that it's yeah. I think, I think there are some interior spaces in the city that I think it would be good to, to, to think about um, reclaiming. Mm -hmm. You know, to what extent can we engage the owner of the the, the roundhouse in Vic West to, to to undertake it and open it up for for additional spaces? It won't be purely public, but it may be an opportunity. You know, certainly that developer is looking to activate that space and bring people into it in some way, shape, or form. How do we get the feds to open up the armory and use that for mm -hmm. more things? Like mm -hmm. it's a, these are large indoor spaces that. Uh, allow for you know, lots of different things to happen, and they sit empty a lot of the time. And so you know, reutilizing re some of these private or public by another uh, level of government spaces and figuring out ways and coming up with, with um, uh, opportunities to utilize those, I think that's, that's a great opportunity. And you know, I, I was laughing with the culture shed. That said, we are, we are looking here at, at, at a miniature version of that or some sort of flexible interior space as part of the, 
the designs uh, concepts we're looking at for the ship point uh, adjacent to the causeway and so the re re reworking of our waterfront uh, because again we think that's a space that we can activate yeah. over time because of the different layers of my, yeah my guess is you must have a lot of unused um, in, in industrial infrastructure not a ton it's not a it's not a we don't have a significant sort of history of industrial activity on uh, not even at the harbor area I haven't been there some, yet, a lot so. of it's still still still, still, still operational still, yeah okay still a still a very young city I feel like you know a lot of those spaces will eventually be reclaimed because I, I, I mean on a long enough timeline in the life of a city the sort of the, the more oh. of course you don't want them all to disappear right yeah. which is what happened in Norway when they in Norway when we were working on the waterfront you know there was this challenge that all the industry was moving out and they started to realize that it just left this kind of weird empty kind of character so they push to move some of them back in anyway. I mean, at least the ones that didn't need 5,000 trucks every day delivering materials to them. <laughs> well, I know, sorry to cut it short like this, but I know Whitney has to get no, back to, <laughs> to change no, no. diapers and things but, like that. But I also, I also know it's, it's eight o'clock and I, I have had very little food today and, um, and there's still plenty of drinks. And I think that the, you know, I'm, I'm just around out in the city, happy to answer questions. I know, Craig, um, we could hang out for a bit, and, and Jonathan has always made himself available to me, so I don't see why he wouldn't make himself available to anybody who has ideas and wants to discuss them. Uh, Jonathan and I meet and just talk about, like, coffee, really? Wind, my wind telephone, or wind telephone. coffee carts, or whatever else. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. I feel like we can, if there, if there are any burning questions that you guys have for us as a group, um, maybe ask them, but otherwise maybe seek us out right now and we'll just sort of go back to mingling. I'll put on some music and we'll go from there. Caleb, can I just in one last burning question? Sure. Um, talking about unconventional public spaces, I'm curious what the panel thinks about uh, radio, because to me radio is a public space mm. that mm. is severely underutilized. Yeah. Um, to me, in Victoria, radio isn't serving the job that it should be because there's so much private radio that's just trash and then a little bit of public that is trying really hard but not doing everything it could mm. be. I don't know if anybody has any visions for, for radio and how it fits into contemporary culture, the progress of our city, our society as a whole. Podcasts are great, but podcasts only target a select part of the population. And, and podcasts... And local? Yeah, really? and, they're not, and they're not contemporary. You know, they're, they're, they're already done, and then we can listen to them for, theoretically forever and ever. But radio, if you don't hear it on the radio, it's gone. And that's, I think that's really, uh, that's, that's a cool space where something can happen and then just disappear. I I'm think just that's... surprised to hear this because I, I don't live in Canada, but I listen to CBC all the time. Because you, <laughs> you can get it online, and it's like the best radio. I think CBC2 is really great. And, there's some great stations there. So you don't get that out here, or what? No, no. I think we might be sensitized yeah. to it. We might want more. We might want more. Uh, Sorry, more about the commercial. Uh, like, oh, no, I think a lot of people have Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. In Norway, they've had a similar challenge. And um, I know when you get way far north, where it's pretty remote, 
people will just have the radio on listening to the weather, uh, you know, like the, the we got 35 kilometer mile an hour squalls, <laughs> and, you know, for 15 miles offshore, and now it's 25 kilometers, and, you know, and you just listen to this weird, like, strange numbers all night long. <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, the, I think radio has, has a, a great purpose, and, and, but it's funny that you consider it public space because while it does serve a public good and that it disseminates knowledge to a wide audience, I often see it more as a private thing. I mean, I listen to radio all the time. I don't have a TV. I don't watch things on the internet, and I don't have, I just have a radio. And, uh, and, you know, I find generally I listen to it in solitary uh, or with my immediate friends or family. Um, I don't see myself going out into the street with a boombox and, like, everybody listen to the radio. Let's, like, all get together and make a revolution. But there's some examples <laughs> of radio being the catalyst to... Oh, it's definitely a catalyst. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff. I mean, Pacifica. Do you have Pacifica radio? Probably not. You don't need it in Canada because it's like so great here. But in the in, <laughs> in the U.S., there's you know issues with the radio, and there's a group called Pacifica where they take the radio station onto a boat and then take the boat 200 yeah 200 miles offshore and broadcast. Right. You I have that here too? Maybe. No. Yeah. I think perhaps we take for granted how good things are here. And the fact that we're like, oh, I know. we need more radio. And then we yeah. have somebody who is listening to our radio from somewhere else and they're like, why do you we complain about it? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. and to me, the best part of CBC is 2 a.m. in the morning when they do BBC World Service. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny, though. You know, everywhere you go, there's always some kind of challenge with where you are. And, and some of them, the challenges are the same everywhere you go. Most people like to complain about the weather everywhere. Mm. I mean, I could be in Hawaii and people would be like, oh, the weather here is pretty bad. We don't have any seasons. They like moan <laughs> about it. You know, like San Francisco. I go to San I just came from San Francisco. Everyone's complaining about the weather there. And it's like they micromanage the weather there. It's like today it was 68 degrees. And they're like, you know, it's nice, but 69 degrees is a lot better. <laughs> you know, I really enjoy that. Uh, and, and, you know, and it might be the same with the radio. Like, you know, it's, it's probably... Um, diverse in some way, and uh, I don't know, when I listen to CBC 2, it goes through a whole cycle of events through the day, and you get a pretty pretty diverse, uh, and music especially, like I hear music on CBC 2 that I can't get in the US, or it may be there, but I'd have to know somebody, a Canadian. <laughs> we have a lot of Canadians in our studio, by the way. They're all great. I do have one sort of burning thing that I've been thinking about this whole time. Um, the, the place that I know of in the world that is an example of sort of um, working through this stuff is Barcelona in the supergrids, sort of how the people are. Does anyone know about what's happening in Barcelona? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's really worth looking into. Um, it's, it's a little bit kind of um, raw, I would say, right now, and not refined, but probably the most organized place where it's happening, where people, um, artists, um, I'll pick makers and painters and leaders are taking six, I think six block quadrants and rebuilding them from like, mm. within. Yeah, it's guerrilla, it's like guerrilla thinking. Yeah, it's yeah. Kind of, like really organized and because mm. um, there's some places where it's kind of more chaotic like Portugal and France where it's kind of like anarchists and they're pretty 
badass, but in, in Spain it's really organized, and mm-hmm. some really cool things are happening <laughs> in Spain. It's very worth looking into. Can, can I just, as, as the planner, as a, as a parting comment, mention that as much as we all talked about how we need to unplan things, all of the examples that we've uh, we've referenced in terms of great cities are some of the most uh, rigorously planned cities in the world. I just wanted to say. I, I, I think I think perhaps. I don't think we're saying unplanned things. I'm just saying take a. You know, obviously you have to manage your approach all the time. Absolutely. Has to evolve. I um, I, th- I think uh, perhaps that like. Contrast would be a good note to end on the idea that. The best laid plans are never played. The no, I, never I, get laid. Never the best laid plans <laughs> never get laid. <laughs> a lot of a lot of stuff happening there. Yeah. Um, I like the idea that um, you can create the appearance of spontaneity and things happening by like putting putting in place some very serious planning and that and structure. Yeah. And Barcelona has a very significant structure. Historical, they have a history yeah. of doing really cool things like that. And I think that structure comes from, kind of like necessarily has to come from the culture of the place. Like if, if that is cultivated slowly over time and there's an understanding. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like it's very easy for them to adopt this kind of fluid. Yeah. Yeah, which is what I was saying earlier. If you if you involved education of our world and our built environment, it, it, it changes everything. I mean, I, I say that we are all deaf and mute to the language of objects. Hmm. We're hardly trained or educated to understand what this table is trying to tell us right yeah. now or mm-hmm. what that beam is trying to tell us. We, we make stuff like crazy. But in, like you say, if you can teach it or educate people to start to sense the um, language of these things that we're all the time making, you're able to control it and, and manage it in a more substantial way. I think the Spanish have, do have a good history, obviously, but you know, it's hard to compare sometimes these places that have thousands of years of history and great cathedrals, you know, and great works of architecture that you're born into, as opposed to a place that might have only existed for 100 years, which is highly industrialized. And we're still trying to get over colonialism here, too. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I like to describe Victoria, I, I used to like to describe Victoria as sort of like a, a young man at the awkward stage, just kind of like not really knowing what it's doing. But the more I think about it, the more I think that Victoria is like, like a young woman. It has, this, it has this female energy here that I'm like sort of starting to notice, like that it, it's a little bit... You know, Vancouver and Victoria are sort of similar age, but Victoria has this sort of grace to it that I, and, and sort of pace that is, that is different and isn't as, as combative and isn't as, um, and, uh, isn't as intense in the, in the day-to-day nice that, that, that I really... Well, really it's like. a, you have an economy of scale. I mean, the same thing is said about Norway, right? So. Everyone is like, well, Norway, it's, you know, I lived there for 18 years, and, and uh, everybody likes to say it's such a wonderful place. You have great social democracy, and everything's taken care of. But yeah, it's four and a half million people with you know, the fourth largest oil-producing country in the world. I mean, you can st- I mean, you can mess it up. There mm-hmm. are countries that mess it up, like Nigeria. They have all the oil money, too, and they messed it up. But um, um, I think you, know, you have a, a scale here 
which in combination with the landscape, which we also have in Norway, those two things working together allow you to be conscious of your urban life and your non-urban life relatively simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to do that in some other cities. Um, I think the best cities allow you to do that, but the, the not so very good ones don't. Um, Barcelona has a harbor and, and has water nearby. You have a lot of water, obviously. That changes your opinion of, of the world. I think water cities are different than desert or sand cities. Um, you know, all those things change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, okay. I hear a lot of chatter. We're going to wrap this up and get on with the evening. All right. Put on some music. I'm putting Thank it you on very me. much, Thank guys, you. for coming. Yeah. I, really, I, I, hope, I hope it was enjoyable. And we'll see you out there. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.